Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We'd love for you to join the conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship. If you have a question, please text or email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. And on today's episode, we have a special guest. Let's tune in. Very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, and welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards, I guess still co-hosting today, but joined by Dave Robson as our host and technical advisor. Happy to have you with us. I like that. Technical advisor? That's great. Yes, we advise each other on whether or not technology is working. (laughs) And of course, we'll be answering your Bible questions for the next hour. There's a number of ways the people can get their questions to us. What would those be? Well, you can email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. If you're listening to us on Reach Radio, I believe you are listening to yesterday's live broadcast. But do send your uh, email questions in, and we will endeavor to get to those next time we are on air. And consider, when you're not on your drive time, joining us live. You can do so at Facebook, um, which is at our our church uh, Facebook page, uh, facebook.com slash CCF Tucson. You can join us there live. Also at our website, which is calvarychristianfellowship.com. Follow the tab there for Watch Live. Or on YouTube, which is A Reason for Hope. If you search for A Reason for Hope, you will find us live there. Also, if you have an Apple TV or a Roku device, we have an app for our church. Uh, search for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. Download the app onto those devices, and you can watch us there as well on your big screen, on your TV, if you care to do so. But if you're looking at our faces, that means that you found a way to join us. And do please send in your questions. Sean and I will be monitoring those questions as they come in. And A Reason for Hope is guided purely by your questions, your Bible questions, maybe questions on Christian living that we will endeavor to uh, dig into the Word and find answers for as we search it out together. And uh, this is the first time we've been doing the show together, Sean. This is exciting. Yes, with this roster. Well, yes. So do be praying for us, and how about we pray for ourselves also? Would Absolutely. you like to pray? It'd be an honor. Dad, thank you that we have the chance to be here. We want to invite you to be here as well, to not only speak your Word, but your heart with your voice, and to your people, ultimately for your glory. We want to ask that this program would go off without a hitch, that any technical issues along the way would resolve themselves, and that your people would be eager and ready to not only receive your word, but to hear it from you personally. We're honored to be a part of the process, and we want to ask that we would be equipped for the right heart and attitude to bring in such an endeavor. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm. Amen. So starting us off, we'll obviously be waiting for your questions to come in, but we have some prepared in advance for all of you. Uh, first, and I think the most interesting one, are always our contradictions of the day. Uh, since I still have young eyes, I'll read them. We have a long <laughs> list here, and this was taken from an atheist website, by the way. Apparently, the Bible contradicts itself in its claim that Zedekiah's eyes beheld the king of Babylon, so someone saw something or someone didn't. In Jeremiah chapter 34 and verse 3, it says yes, whereas in 2 Kings 25 and verse 7, it says no. Now, Obviously, none of these are new, for since the German school, Wellhausen, Tubigen, and many others have made the 
I guess, endeavor to popularize atheism by first targeting and dismantling its greatest competitor, that is Christianity, we need to be prepared with these things because while they aren't old, they certainly are getting old, meaning that they continue to repeat them regardless of how many times we answer them. And there's good news in that regard. At least the answers haven't changed. But if the questioners themselves want to ask this question, we need to be able to, ready to, and willing to, provide the same answer the same way it ought to have been given the first time, and that is what? Well, whenever someone brings up a contradiction in the Bible, and again, they give two passages, I'll make sure that we can read them from the passages themselves, because that is the first step in dealing with a contradiction, is to call their bluff, make sure that they can show you where and when. But the second thing that is most important in dealing with a contradiction is knowing what a contradiction is. Hmm. It's a fancy multi-syllable word, probably came from your neck of the world, so it sounds fancy and authoritative, but in reality, it's mostly used in a way that doesn't actually mean what they think it means. A contradiction is a violation of the second formal law of logic, that is, that A does not equal non-A. Two things in the same way and in the same sense cannot both be true and at the same time cancel each other out. So if we were looking for a contradiction, we would want two instances in the Bible where a factual statement was made absolutely, and then in another passage, a factual statement in direct conflict with that fact was also being stated. And usually they would make this approach one of two ways. They would either overstate or overemphasize details that aren't actually in the passage, mm. or they would basically be unaware of details that uh, maybe one more verse reading would clarify. So let's deal with this one. In apparently the book of Jeremiah, chapter 34 and verse 3, I'll turn there now, it says that Zedekiah, who was one of the last kings of Israel, did in fact behold the king of Babylon, and that was Nebuchadnezzar. So again, Jeremiah chapter 34 and verse 3, that's an interesting passage. And for those of you listening as well at home, there is a passage in Ezekiel that'll be relevant here as well that they didn't bother to mention, but we will because uh, we're good like that. In verse 3, it says, and let's start in verse 2 so we know who's being addressed. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, go and speak to Zedekiah, check, the king of Judah, and tell him, thus says the Lord, behold, I will give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire and you shall not escape from his hand, but you shall surely be taken and delivered into his hand. Your eyes shall see the king of Babylon. He shall speak to you face to face, and you shall go to Babylon. Now that last sentence is going to be important here in a minute. Mm. But note that there are some explicit details being given to Jeremiah about him going to Babylon, seeing the king of Babylon face to face, maybe not necessarily in that order, wink, wink, but those are some factual details that so far are so good. In 2 Kings, however, in verse 7 of chapter 25, we're given something that supposedly contradicts this. Now, remembering what a contradiction is, let's read and start again in verse, let's start in verse 4. This uh, city wall was broken through, and all the men of war fled at night by way of the gate between the two walls, which was by the king's garden, even though the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, were still encamped all around the city. But the king, that is Zedekiah, 
went by way of the plain. The army of the Chaldeans pursued the king. They overtook him in the plains of Jericho. All his army was scattered from him. So they took the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah. So we haven't actually gotten to the verse they say contradicts this. We would have to go one verse prior and find out, yes, he was, in verse 6, brought to the king of Babylon. But let's keep reading. And they pronounced judgment on him. Then they killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, put out the eyes of Zedekiah, and bound him with bronze fetters, and took him to Babylon. Uh, Obviously an ugly thing to be the last thing you ever see, your kids killed right in front of you, and then they put his eyes out. But what happened just one verse before verse 7? That would be minus 1, carry verse 6. And verse 6 says they brought him to who? The king of Babylon. Mm. Who is the one who put out his eyes? The king of Babylon. Mm. Who's the one who killed his kids? The king of Babylon. Who then took him to Babylon, no longer having eyes? the king of Babylon. So this is a fine example of someone who's counting on you to just assume that they were telling the truth. And even if they were to post the verses on the screen for you, you would only have to do enough homework to look at the page the verse was from. Go one verse back and realize they brought him to the king of Babylon before they put out his eyes. It doesn't say he saw Babylon, it says he saw the king of Babylon. And obviously you have a very high priority of looking at the person who's putting out your eyes because that's a necessary process. So note the information here. It's ugly history, but it's not a contradiction. And when it comes to the Bible's ability to stand on its own two feet, you can have confidence in this, mostly because the objections we've been given haven't gotten any better, but it's also because the Bible has been given these sort of challenges, and we're still reading it today. Not because we're stubborn, because they're Silly, let's just put it that way. (laughs) That is how we should handle those things. So remember, call their bluff, look up the passages, show, have them show you where and when, and second, when you get to those passages, be willing to read the whole event in its proper context. Ask the where, the who, the when, the why. Even be willing to perhaps read, I know it's a lot to ask, especially for internet atheists, but one verse prior. And if truth is actually what they're concerned about, then with, again, minimal sass, we're among our brothers and sisters here, so we can be kind of loose. But the point being made is this. Ask them, if I were to answer that question, would you consider giving your life to Jesus? Because that's ultimately and always going to be our goal. If they want to discredit the truth of the Bible, then obviously they have reason to dismiss Jesus. Mm. But if they discover there is truth to the Bible, but they don't care, well, then why are we talking about it? Right. We don't want to waste time with them or us, especially since their worldview would insist they only have a few short decades before their existence ceases forever. We, of course, don't believe that, which is why we care enough to answer these questions. We also know our time is limited, and we don't want to waste either theirs or ours, because it is limited from both perspectives. Uh, anything more you'd want to clarify or add That's to that? That's great. I mean, just as you were saying, to, you know, we can, I guess, waste a lot of time if we feel this responsibility that we need to answer this question to their liking in order for them to, you know, come to the Lord. And that's, as you're saying, very often not the case, you know, and, and praying for that peace as we talk to people to, I guess, have the wisdom to know, you know, even on this show, we ask that questions are honest questions, right? Honest questions from the heart, something that that you, as you seeking God, uh, are confused about or, you know, circumstance in your life, not questions that are, you know, specifically meant to 
to trip you up or prove you wrong and those kind of things. Those are not honest questions. And of course, we lean on the side of grace and patience with people. But um, as you were saying, Sean, bringing it back to the person of Jesus, you know, because that's the really the foundation of our of, of our faith, receiving the Lord and, and understanding what forgiveness is and that we need it. I was thinking for myself when I came to the Lord, I had questions. You know, I, I was sat, I was sitting in a car with a friend of mine as a as a teenager. Did they involve King Zedekiah? <laughs> they did not involve King Zedekiah. No, they did not. <laughs> um, they they involved more, you know, lifestyle things and things that I knew Christians didn't do that I still wanted to do and and things like of that nature, a lot more more simple and carnal. But the I got to the point where it's like I had God, you know the world in this hand and God in this hand, and I knew God was calling me and what was I gonna choose? And I, I just moved forward in faith knowing that I'd have to figure some things out you know, along the way and God would lead me through those. So you know, that in contrast to sometimes these questions that are literally meant to trip us up or to prove us wrong. And like you say, the, these so-called contradictions just with some study um, and some context can obviously figure themselves themselves out so but you don't want to give an answer they don't care about and i wouldn't care right. about those things and i'm kind of a trivia nerd when it comes to this so just make sure that you clarify those things and we'll be all fine and dandy yeah uh going Very out good. to our facebook page got a question from craig who wants to know the bible says we're all destined to die once that's correct hebrews notes that it is given to man once to die and then after that comes the judgment and that's repeating an old testament sentiment by the way but he wants to know when the rapture happens, those who are taken up never died, or have our earthly bodies died in that instant we are taken? Well, I guess in a functional sense, Greg, but I can give you summaries all day long. Let's just stick to the text. When it comes to the description of what the rapture will be like, there are generally two passages. I could note four, but two that are the most direct in regards to us receiving our resurrection bodies. First Thessalonians chapter four is obviously the first and main one because it uses the word rapture and that is where we get the name of the doctrine from specifically in regards to those who have physically died before Jesus's return and those who will literally be caught up to be with him in the air. So noting both end up being with the Lord, Paul's point in that conversation was clarifying chronology, that those who die in the Lord will not uh, by any means, that so obviously they will, precede those who have mm -hmm. fallen asleep in Jesus. They are with Jesus now, given to man wants to die, then comes the judgment. You're absent from the body, you're present with the Lord. That's also in uh, letters to the Corinthians. But the second passage that we go to, and this was a whole chapter talking about the resurrection. First, it starts with the gospel, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Then he goes off to list the eyewitnesses. After that, he basically builds this case in explaining from the Jewish mindset what the resurrection's all about. He used an example of an acorn compared to an oak tree, how they're both the same substance, but one's so much greater than the one that came before mm. it. Everything that is involved in the tree is in the acorn, but you don't see it yet until it's buried, till it dies physically. But then he goes on after 49 verses to reach the 50th, and that's where we get the answer to your question as far as the semantics of physical death and the rapture. It says, verse 50, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. This is referencing back to several points he's already made. In a nutshell, it's saying that this 
bag of pork isn't going to survive heaven. It's going to be changed. And that's what he goes on to say. I tell you a mystery, verse 51. We shall not all sleep. That's a euphemism for physical death. So note that clarification first. Have we physically died? Technically. But have we died in order to be raptured? No. He says we won't all sleep, but we shall all be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruption must put on incorruption, the heavenly body. This mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible is put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying, which is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, Hades, where is your sting? Oh, death, or oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? And this, of course, is referencing the book of Hosea. But noting the whole topic of the conversation and the references and terms, you can read the whole chapter on your own time, Craig, but it's referencing this transition to the heavenly body. As far as the old body is concerned, it may as well be physically dead. Why? Because that has been replaced by your heavenly body. Mm -hmm. The only difference between those who physically die in the Lord and are with him, is clarified in 1 Thessalonians, are those who have been caught up and those who have been simply taken. The saying is often there are two ways to meet the Lord, either you go to him or he comes down for you. Mm -hmm. The rapture is in reference to those who would receive a resurrection body at the same time they depart this earth. Mm -hmm. Those who are physically uh, dead are, of course, waiting for the resurrected bodies. As far as the details as to what they're in right now, I think he's got that covered. But what we are told and what we're told about the resurrection transition is that at the time of the rapture, that transformation is instantaneous. You don't have to physically die to receive a resurrection body. But you received a resurrection body, so what happened to the old one? It wasn't destroyed, it was replaced. You are still you, the body is still the body, just like the acorn is still the oak tree, but something so much greater has happened. Mm. So follow the flow of Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 15. 50 through 55 will answer your question for the most part, but if that's uh, somehow not clear or if there's other details, maybe controversies surrounding the rapture that'll clarify with other views in mind, we'll be happy to deal with those too, but that would be the passage I'd go to, just to clarify the resurrection body. The transition for those who are raptured are instantaneous. The transition for those who are physically dead are with the Lord, that's the rule, but they will be meeting the Lord basically in that resurrection body at the same time we will. They'll be with him in the interim, but there's other theories for that as far as how the transition from this world's time and the next world's time. Plenty of theories, plenty of books, none of which are this one, so we'll <laughs> stick to this. Let's just make sure that when it comes to what we do know, it's actually from the text. The transition, and again, I'm just saying this for the sake of clarity, for those who are resurrected are those who are with the Lord. Mm -hmm. Those who are raptured are given the resurrection body and are with the Lord at the same time. For those who physically die, it's different. You can read 1 Thessalonians 4 for that, but that would be how I deal with that. Very nice. Thank all you, right. Um, when will, will all this happen? Is it next week? Uh, no man knows the day or the hour. Oh, come on. I stick to the text, so if you got complaints, <laughs> bring that it up. That was a test, you. and you passed. Good job. Well, all right. Um, yep. Got some questions along to us by email? Yeah, we did. Um, it's a question from Mary. 
How did Lucifer become prideful in the presence of God before evil was even created? This, this is a good question, actually. How did, how did Lucifer basically sin in heaven in order to be ultimately kicked out? Well, I guess we got to start with the dictionary because evil isn't a thing that was created. It's mm. the definition is the absence or the not God character. Mm. So if I'm talking about something good, I'm not saying it's this nebulous concept or entity that even God must obey. God doesn't do good things. God doesn't even determine what good things are. God is good by nature, the mind that determined reality and how to be in line with all those things is naturally going to be the one we want to agree with if we want to get things right, because he set the system. But if, on the other hand, we were to do not that, this is just as much in practical effect as it is in moral, but just think practically. If I design something, this piece of paper, it's to be written on, it's to maybe be folded, made into some form of artwork, it can accomplish many purposes, even kindling. But if your intention was for it to be written on and you start, you know, using a hot pen or a soldering iron or something, that's not the intended purpose. It's going to burn up. It's going to be damaged. In the same way, if this body, this psyche, this soul that was meant to reflect the image of God doesn't do that, it will be damaged. It will not fulfill its purpose. So in a moral sense, when we say we're doing evil, we aren't creating this anti-God universe. Mm. We're literally in God's universe, but going against a purpose or a nature or a mm. characteristic of God we were meant to reflect. Mm. So it would be the same way that a virus affects a computer. It's running the drive to the point where it's damaging itself. It's sending out files that you didn't tell it to, and on it goes. Mm. So when we're talking about Satan, whose name, by the way, just means adversary or accuser, uh, developed his bad attitude, if you will. It wasn't something that God introduced to him. It was something that Satan, our adversary, our accuser, was given the capacity to do because he, by nature, wasn't God. But also note that being a cherub, according to Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, Revelation chapter 12, and many others, these, this glorious creature that we used to call Lucifer, son of the morning, the morning star, whatever you want mm -hmm. to refer to him as, he was perfect in wisdom, perfect in beauty, and was literally, according to some of these passages, a worship leader, essentially, in right. heaven, something you know something about. So when it came to his fall, it was what? Not that God set him up to fail. He had more working knowledge of God's goodness than any of us do. That's why in the mm -hmm. book of Hebrews it says God doesn't give aid to angels. They, they know more than we do, and they said no to it. Yeah. We don't know anything about God apart from this little inkling of what he's introduced to us, and we're overwhelmed. Yeah. But if, on the other hand, God were just to appear to all of us, you can read an example of this in the screw tape letters, it would be overwhelming. We'd be forced and compulsed to acknowledge his glory. And if then, after that, we were to reject him, what more could he do? Hmm. So God has set things up in such a way where this veiling is taking place that wasn't in the case with the angels. The impact that Lucifer's willful inversion of his purpose, hmm. to instead glorify God, tried to glorify himself. He said, and this is in Isaiah 14, I will ascend above the, uh, you know, 
noting the uh, passages not to fill out dead air. I'll turn to the passage here in a moment. But he made several I will statements, ultimately saying that I would be like the Most High. And all God had to do was give him one reality check, no, you won't, and it would result in what we call his fall. Not just in a physical sense, that'll be fulfilled in the future, but also in his ultimate character-based sense, that he and God's nature were no longer in line with each other. And we see that that uh, was kind of ugly. Let me read the passage. It says in Isaiah 14 and verse 13, "'You have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, his fellow angels. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High.'" Verse 15, yet you shall be brought down to Sheol in the lowest depths of the pit. And those who will see you will gaze at you and consider you, saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness, destroyed its cities, who did not open the house of his prisoners? This is obviously made in comparison to the king of Tyre, but the point being made is this. When Lucifer fell, we're not talking about a being that created something apart from God. He was created and he was given the capacity, because he wasn't God, to not be that. Mm. And there's a risk whenever God does something that's not him. (laughs) When he created us, the opportunity (laughs) was to fall. But if, on the other hand, he created us with the capacity to reflect and receive his love, that was a high enough good to risk the consequence. Mm. And also note as well, as we read in Revelation 13, when it came to us, God knew everything he'd have to go through in order to redeem us. Mm. This demonstration of his goodness shouldn't then be turned around and used as a mark to prove he is actually bad. Mm. But if, on the other hand, we'd say, well, Lucifer knew so much goodness about God, why then did he sin? And this is going back to Mary's question. Well, the same answer is, why do we sin with the little knowledge that Mm. we have? Because we aren't God, that we in our natures have the ability to say no or yes to him. The capacity for great good also includes with it the capacity for at least as great an evil. And if Lucifer was a source of great beauty, of great wisdom, that also includes with it the risk of great not beauty, of great not wisdom, Mm. which we saw him reflect. It's a cautionary tale, but it is a legitimate one. And if we note the one who actually made the decision was Lucifer, then we note, first of all, that's a mark for God, not against him, because he didn't just annihilate him right off the bat. Why? Because if we weren't given any other competition than God, then that makes him the scary, obsessive, you know, angsty, obsessed girlfriend. Mm. He's not going to let any competition between us and him. If, on the other hand, we look at Lucifer and go, that's what not God looks like? (laughs) That's not the way I want to go in life. That's not where I want to head. That's a possible explanation, not the one, again, the Bible that would exclusively give. It's one of them. But here's the point. What we know about Lucifer is that he made a mistake. Why? A, look at his future. What has it ultimately done? It separated him from God. And the place prepared for the devil and his angels is welcome and open for business for anyone who wants to join him. Mm. Problem is, that's not recommended. We look at his present. What is he now? Well, he was, in the past, Lucifer, a beautiful cherub that anointed, literally, a Messiah cherub, something that was set aside for a special and unique purpose for the worship of God, but now he's essentially a cosmic internet troll that seeks to accuse us before the throne of God day and night, who is a murderer from the beginning, the father of lies. That's not 
those aren't God things. If God is the truth, then it's natural someone who doesn't want to be him, to reflect his characteristics, to glorify him, is going to be a liar, who as the source of life, God, who in rebelling against him is going to want to do what? Be a murderer from the beginning. Note the themes. Evil isn't a thing, it's the absence of God's nature. When we see Lucifer, we see someone who is given the same respect that we were, but also with more immediate consequences, and very serious ones at that. But understand, that is the point. If we're talking about, well, evil wasn't created yet. You can't create a void. You can allow for it, but that was what God did when he did the highest good, and that was what? To allow our existence. God isn't a tyrant that isolates himself and only allows the capacity for himself to exist. Mm. Instead, what he did was he allowed the opportunity for us to reflect and enjoy him more. And was that a mistake on his part? I don't think he regrets it. Otherwise, he wouldn't have gone through with it. Mm -hmm. But if, on the other hand, we look at the consequences it's inflicted, or at least that freedom has inflicted, on the people who've rebelled against him, well, that's kind of their fault, not his. The fact that he's allowed them to do a great good is also bringing with it the risk for them to do a great evil. And I'm repeating this point just so it's clear. We don't believe that God is evil because he allows for good. Mm. <laughs> and we also don't believe that evil, the definition of evil, is good because that's just nonsensical. Mm. If we define morality in the context of the God of Israel's setting, that is what we mean. And if we accuse him of doing wrong for allowing something that's right, well, first of all, again, to use the word we mentioned before, that's silly. But if on the other hand as well, we say, well, look at what it did with Lucifer. And I'd say, that's the whole point. Why is he being allowed to exist? Well, do you want that? Mm. That's the whole point. So yeah. go off the information we have. Don't, I guess, build on this hypothetical case of, well, what if Lucifer never fell? He did. It was not pretty, and it still isn't. But if, on the other hand, you'd say, well, what about when I sinned? Well, the good news is you aren't being held to the same level of responsibility that Lucifer is. Jesus himself made the point that he, to him who much is given, much shall be required. You can do with what God's given you, either for great good or for great evil. People who know the Bible can use it to do what I hope we're doing and teach it accurately, and there's also people who can use it to manipulate people emotionally for money. doesn't mean that we throw out the Bible doesn't mean that God created a false prosperity gospel. It means they did, and God respects and allowed them the freedom to even do what was wrong. Mm. But notice, just like with Lucifer, just like with the false teachers, just like with the good teachers that we're trying to be, all will be brought into judgment, and that's the point. Does God allow evil? Yeah, but he's taking notes, and they, won't, they will also answer for that. So make sure that's kept in check as well. Yeah. Go with all the data, not uh, some odd hypotheticals that aren't actually in the text. Yeah. And what a gift it is to have a, a choice, you know, a choice in our relationship with God and in, I mean, loving someone in, in general. And <clears throat> it's really that big difference between religion and relationship in, you know, how we, um, how we approach this choice, you know, and I think I, I have two uh, teenage kids, well, my daughter's almost essentially teenage, she's not quite yet, but you would think so. Um, there's a, something I've been instilling in them because I, I like to cook at home and I'll call them when dinner's ready. And just the other day I said, hey, let's start a new habit when you come down, when I call you and you come into the kitchen, ask, what can I do to help? You know, because sometimes they come and they just sit, you know, and just wait for me to serve them like a, like a restaurant, you know. <laughs> and I'll say, can you get out knives and forks? And they'll do that. And then can you do this? 
So I, I, I came to me a few days ago, when you come down, like, how can I, how can I help? Just ask that and just kind of trying to instill, because more than just giving them jobs of getting knives and forks or whatever, I want them to develop that heart of how can I help and how can I, you know, enter a room and see what needs doing and want to serve those kind of heart things instead of just, I guess we call the religious, like, well, I, you know, it's my job on Tuesday to get knives and forks, you know, <laughs> to have that heart to want to help and to, to serve. And I remember being young in my faith, I had those kind of religious questions. Well, how, you know, can you be a Christian and still do this? Can you be a Christian and still do that? Can you, can I still, you know, have this area over here? And I realized at some point, what kind of love relationship is that? Why, why aren't I asking, like, how, how far can I go to honor God? How far can I go in my love for God? How can I, you know, if these things are, are now I know evil and of the, the world, how far away can I get from that? Not how close can I get and still be in, but how far can I get away from those things because I want to be as close to God and, and reflect Him as I possibly can. And that's, it, it's, that's a heart and a, and, a, and a mindset and an attitude twist that sometimes we can still fall back into, you know, and sometimes even some, you know, asking these kind of questions, well, can you still, you know, do this? Can, you know, instead of asking what would really glorify God the most with my life and kind of training yourself to see God that way. You mentioned, you know, we see the Bible tells us, uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, right? We, we see in part, we know in part, we see through a mirror dimly, you know, we have that limited, like you say, and I think as well how it, it an instruction for pastors um, uh, it, or teachers that not many should desire that because we will have a, a greater judgment. And I believe that's because the more you know, then the, there's a greater responsibility there. You know, for us to be in the Word, um, then there's a responsibility to do the right thing with it. And how much more, like you said, Sean, the you know the angels and the heavenly beings. I mean, they were right, right there with God. And it's a great question: how, how, or why would Lucifer <laughs> say no thanks to God? It's, a, I mean, it's, it kind of blows blows your mind. Um, you but realize we, we're doing the same thing every day. So that's, that's right. That's right. But you're right. We are limited, you know, in our, um, you know, we see, we, we see in part, but the responsibility is for us to, to dig into those things. So we are approaching God as a beautiful person, as a beautiful pursuit, as a, as a God that, that, that sustains and satisfies and that we're complete in him and all those things to where we're not just like, well, how, how much can I, get away with and still kind of be in you know those are the wrong questions to ask that's the wrong heart to have and so our prayer daily that we would really see the beauty of the lord that he is the, the greatest pursuit and it's a struggle i mean it's a, it's a daily death to self and death to those desires but there was a kind of a a question here that i saw that a follow-up from craig wants to yeah. know uh regarding Satan, if he knows he can't win, that's an if, uh, why does he keep going? Is it just to cause as much death and mayhem as possible? Mm. Uh, well, remember, Craig, what was the sin of Lucifer? It was pride. Pride, in a nutshell, is a false view of yourself and others. It's a fundamental attitude of self-deception. And if you're deceiving yourself in order to either over-engrandize or even dehumanize yourself, that is going to not reflect reality. That's why the Proverbs constantly hammer home this haughty attitude or this arrogant look is not the sort of 
attitude you want to adopt if you want to be wise because it doesn't lead to good decisions. It ultimately leads to destruction. And so if we ask ourselves, well, what's going through Lucifer's head? Pretty much the same thing that's going through all of our heads whenever we sin. We're saying, well, I don't care what God's Word says. I don't care what I think I know about God or what I'm choosing not to think about God at this moment. I'm only thinking about me and what I want, and my behavior will reflect that. If we, in a fallen, sinful, microscopic, one planet and our sphere of influence consequences sense can only manage that, then imagine the greater level of impact that pride is having on that of a creature like Lucifer. We need to understand evil doesn't have an off switch. It isn't rational. When you look at the way that people are reflecting his heart even today, the reality is you're talking to the intellectual equivalent of not even eight-year-old children. Hmm. It's literally just what is handed to me right in front of me that makes me feel good about myself, and anyone or anything that stands in the way of that, I would gladly, literally, disembowel them on the street. Well all well and good. I'm glad that the police are still willing to do your job so that you hesitate from that in an immediate sense, but that's the heart. And when you look at the world that we live in today, people who, in the name of Islam, would be able to intellectually and objectively look at the Quran and realize this is absolute nonsense, that every, according to not just people with opinions like me, but Arabic experts say every third word or so just doesn't make sense in reference to the language. Mm. People don't look at that. They say, this is the most beautiful language that's ever been penned on paper, and this is proof that it's from God. Why? Because it says so, and if you don't believe that, then I'm going to kill you. Why? Because people in my life will do the same to me if I don't say this to you. That's not rational. That's fear, that's tyranny, that's hatred, and that's, again, the attitude of pride. But if, on the other hand, I take a step back and go, oh, well, the Bible says, you know, to thine own self be true. No, it doesn't say that. Are you, say are you blaspheming the scriptures? No, you're not quoting it. It's not rational. Sin is not rational, and if Lucifer is the greatest embodiment of separation from God in your nature, includes the separation from wisdom and pride, then we shouldn't expect of him to be planning this out in a pragmatic sense. But if, on the other hand, we were to look at ourselves and go, well, that's his beef, but look at me, I also don't plan ahead in regards to the sin I want to indulge in in the moment. I also don't consider the eternal consequences of my actions on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. Hopefully I am more and more. There's the point. If I assume that people will always be rational, I'm not hanging out with a lot of people. Mm. If I'm only thinking that a decision would be made given the most rational information, I need to take a look at the reasons I've made my own decisions in life. The nature of sin is not wisdom, it's not um, efficiency. Sometimes people can be smart in their sin to think, well, how can this profit me in the moment, or how can I make sure that I don't get caught in acting through with this? There are smart serial killers out there. But when it comes down to it, what is the nature of evil? It's not God. And what is God? among other things, the source of all wisdom. And if I don't model him, which Lucifer certainly does not model God, then I'm not going to expect from him the ability to come to rational conclusions about the ultimate epistemological consequences of my moral decisions as a cherub. And again, remember, 
he, knowing the full goodness of God, chose himself as more beautiful anyway. If you started there, you're certainly not going to get beyond there, and that's already stupid. But also note as well, we're stupid <laughs> because we are sinners as well. We're following in that rebellion, and if not for the direct intervention of the Holy Spirit every single day, we'd be a lot worse, <laughs> and that's the point. So again, Craig, I, I'm not uh, shaming you for it or anything, but just remember that. Don't assume that Satan's smart or at least any smarter than any other sinner, because separation mm. from the source of wisdom is just as much going to make you run bone dry than me separating the power from this camera is going to cut off the live stream. It's not how this was meant to function. There may be a battery, but that only shows that God's poured so much of himself into us that it can, well, I guess uh, last a little while before it ends up going power out completely. We call that hell. But the point being made is that as well. The assumptions made, well, why won't people repent in hell? Because you're assuming that the capacity to repent is something in us, that the capacity for good decisions right. and critical thinking is in us. Yeah. Separate from God, nothing good yeah. exists. Right. And I know that in me, that is in my flesh, Paul said in the letter to the Romans, nothing good dwells. Right. And if that's our working understanding, then it's zenith example and Satan point up for that, but you get the point. Kind of should. He is accusing us before the Father, so I'll I'll deal with the non-Euclidean dimensions later, but the point (laughs) to be made is that. Join us next week. Yeah, for, uh, (laughs) I guess uh, after Peter and I finish rhetoric, we'll talk about metaphysics, but the point to be made is this. When we're talking about Lucifer, we're talking about not a dumb creature, but a very silly one, because Mm. he has rejected the source of all wisdom. And the more we model ourselves after him, the more we're going to become silly, too. Don't Mm. assume of him (laughs) or of anyone else that it's not going to reflect God's nature, because that's kind of the whole reason why we Mm. want to follow God rather than him. Let us know if that's clear. Um, Here's a question from Isaiah, who essentially wants to know why didn't God cast Satan into the lake of fire as soon as he fell? Well, we can speculate, but when it comes down to it, he hasn't. And if God knows how to do God things, then I don't think I would contribute any counsel in saying <laughs> that, well, you know, you would minimize a lot of uh, casualties and collateral damage here yeah. if you had just gone about it this way. Who has become the Lord's counselor? Who has been his helper? I'm not going to make the cop out and say, oh, his ways are above our ways. I'm going to say that God knows enough to not only know what to allow, but also what to limit. Mm. Because remember, Lucifer's influence on this world very much is being limited until the time of the tribulation. And even then, that leash is only going to last for a certain amount of time. And even then, the loosening of that leash and him being cast out from heaven at the halfway point of the tribulation, feel free to ask us if you want to clarify our reasoning for believing that. I can speak for myself. That's not the case. That's what we actually know about. If we want to make hypotheticals about something that hasn't happened, then at the end of the day, it hasn't happened. If we say, well, wouldn't God have done something better if we're already (laughs) taking 50 trillion steps beyond reality? (laughs) Let's make sure that we're sticking to the text, and that's what? That God is only allowing—we can see examples of this in Job chapter 1 through 2, we can note this in Revelation chapter 12, we can note this in Isaiah 30—or Ezekiel 38, and many others. Lucifer's only allowed to manifest his fallenness as far as impacting others, as far as he allows him. Now, some people would say, aren't you giving him a little too much rope? Not by a perfect reckoning. Now, 
I don't always trust that in the way that I ought to. Job himself had to go through a great ordeal in life to remember that one fact. But here's the point that's being made, Isaiah. If we know enough about God to trust him, then his actions and his decisions, even the questionable ones, will be clarified the more that we recognize him as the best possible decision maker. Mm. And that's that's just sticking to the dictionary, yeah. not even getting to the, the source. What other ways could I describe God? Well, let's start with good. Yeah, And if God allows Satan to not be separated from us yet, yet, then I can ask, okay, well, what do I do now that I'm being given the freedom to mess things up, just like him? Well, maybe not follow in his footsteps. Well, maybe focus on trusting God more rather than not. Maybe not following Lucifer's model, which in fact does exist, and seeing the end of that. We can talk about lessons, we can talk about pragmatism, we can talk about all these other fancy words that I can't spell, but the point being made is this. What we know about God is enough if we're willing to trust it. It's a process for us all to go through every single day, but his decisions that we would question, that's a reflection of us saying, well, couldn't I have done it better than God? I'm thankful that you didn't, because the perfect being didn't do what you think he should do, and that should tell me something. Mm. Yeah, that's so good, Sean. That really is so good. And again, like our attitude, I mean, humbling ourselves, walking humbly with God, you know, God doesn't owe us answers, you know, I mean, he's, he is so... I mean, abundantly gracious to give us his, his word, his spirit, his presence, his shepherding, his fathering. I mean, these are all, I mean, anything but aside from hell and death is absolute grace upon grace. And um, having answers to these questions and things that we do understand is, is, is so gracious. I remember I was watching, a, I'm trying to remember, I think it may have been John Piper was doing a, a Bible Q&A much like this, I guess. And the question was, why did God allow the just horrendous things in the Old Testament, you know, just the, the whole villages taken out, such things. And I remember watching like, well, let's see how he's going to answer this question. And the answer was, God is God and he can do whatever he pleases. Um, and it blew, it blew my mind because I realized how true that that is. God doesn't owe us an explanation for what he does. He is God. And I love Sean, that was so good. I love how you put that, that he is, he is good. If we know enough about God to know that he is good, he is perfect in all of his ways, even those things, especially those things that we don't understand, the word tells us, who can understand the mind, know the mind of God? His ways are higher. His thoughts are higher. Who can, under, who can understand his ways? We're told that. You know, we, he, he is above us. I don't really want a God that I can fully understand, especially right now in this flesh. If I, if I could understand it, then I'd feel like I was equal to it and um, again those mindsets of of uh, we trust God we know he's good and we trust him with those things salvation and things who's saved who isn't and all those things we can trust him with that and just seek to know how do we live for him today and serve him today Sean that was so good I really uh, that blessed me brother a little part of the process um question from Nina, who, speaking of processes, wants to know, is God still in the process of creating? Mm. A pastor of hers said God is still in the process of creation. He's still creating angels, animals, plants from nothing. I wonder where he got reference to that, as well as stars and islands. Um, no, that's not true, <laughs> but I'll continue on. Is the seventh day just a day of rest from creation? Thank you. Not a complete finish of creation. So clarifying the seventh day. Well, let's 
stick to the text. Uh, as far as Genesis chapter 2 is concerned, it says, this is verse 1, Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. Now notice, we haven't even gotten to the chronology yet. As far as this creation is concerned, let me read it again. Thus the heavens and the earth, all the host of them, were finished. But you can interpret that many different ways, no? I'm sure you can try, but <laughs> what would be the most coherent? You can interpret, <laughs> but it was finished. Yeah. yeah, you can interpret it in a way where you don't understand English, but that doesn't mean that it's accurate. Again, the seventh day is mentioned in the next verse. It says, on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. Again, I won't uh, attribute motive to whatever pastor was telling you these things. Maybe he's using creation in a looser sense. In Hebrew, there are generally two words for creation, bara and asa. Asa, think like assembly, from pre-existing matter to kind of build, I created a piece of artwork. But God's the only one who does bara, which is to create from nothing. When people say that God's creating islands from nothing, no, he's actually put a system in place where volcanoes are causing molten lava to come to the surface, cool down, and produce greater forms of landmass that's pre-existing material but in a new form. If you say, oh, God's creating angels, where do you get that information? Because angels don't die out, and they obviously aren't making more children. There's no, like, baby angels or anything. I know in It's a Wonderful Life is a fun movie, but it's not like, oh, every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. <laughs> Otherwise, you walk around like the Pied Piper or something. That's I don't not know. true. No, it's not true, okay. unfortunately. Don't Angels don't marry nor are given in marriage. This is as much for reproductive reasons as much as how they glorify God as creatures. But we can deal with that another time. The point being made, though, is this. When pastors say things, including this one, check it out. And in this case, you only had to read the first verse of chapter 2. And as our good friend Don Stewart oftentimes observes, if the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense, lest you believe in nonsense. There are passages in Genesis, in particular, even the first two chapters of Genesis, that require a little bit more thought than at face value. This isn't one of them. When it says that God finished his work of creation, I think he meant it. If you're going to read into the summaries of the seventh day and saying that, well, he just like took a day long break there, but then he started creating stuff again. Mm. I don't know where you're getting that, but it's not here. Right. And here is where I'm comfortable. Call me a chicken, but I'll <laughs> gladly put myself in the grill if that's what that means. So that being said, um, Nina also yeah. wants to know, you wanted to add Well, something? yeah, just the pict. I mean, the creation and the Sabbath is a picture of, of Christ, of Jesus. I mean, that's a, a also a very significant part that we we strive all week long and work, you know, for our salvation, let's say. But Jesus himself is our Sabbath. He is our rest. When he comes, the striving is, is put to a rest and it is completed and finished. Um, Jesus is that Sabbath rest. That's what it's a, a picture of. Um, so it's not only it's way beyond, uh, you know, creation. It's a, it, it points to Jesus and um, the striving of the, the law, I guess I could say, to be right with God that never was designed to do that. And then Jesus came and, and he is our Sabbath rest. We can rest in him. Um, so again, I mean, if that enforces the it being done and complete, it is finished on all those things um, and not, well, it's 
I'm almost done, but I'm going to pick at it <laughs> and see what I can add. Yeah. Um, we can talk about other things like the law, the conservation of matter and other things that any introduction of matter beyond when God completed his work would fundamentally alter the nature of the universe and how that's in conflict with God's nature. We can talk about other things, but let's just stick to the text. Um, I think we got a little bit of time. Got about uh, any, seven minutes here. Yeah, any uh, questions we've also received by email? I'll be keeping an eye on the. Oh, here's a question from Yari on YouTube who wants to know, I guess, the purpose, who should be educating people about the Bible? Well, well, it's all well and good. The majority of the major universities that are now secular were founded as seminaries, believe it or not. Uh, the Bible has been called an education in and of itself, and while there is great profit for people to, whether they believe in God or not, have a working understanding of the Bible, because just like with this list of contradictions, for example, see the people who are most against it are probably the most uneducated about it. Notice, about it, not everything, it. It's a good idea to know what you disagree with before you do that. It's the same reason why, for example, I study Islam. Not because I have to, but because I know that when I talk with Muslims, they take their religion seriously enough that it would be a step forward for me to have done the homework and say, you know, I've looked into what your beliefs are, and I've treated them with the same respect as I would my own, but for this, this, and this reason, I would say... Christianity probably has more to offer. Now, fortunately, we're not living in a country where after saying that, my head is, would be in one place and my body another. But if, on the other hand, I were to talk to someone who's a bit uh, not like their prophet and say, wow, so you at least cared enough to have read something, it's the same level of respect as someone who came up to me and said, you know, I've read the Bible and mean it, and said, well, what about this, this, and this? I'd have a lot more respect for someone who took the time to educate themselves than just because of the assumption, well, you're in America and we read the Bible in schools. Mm. Regarding the objections that a lot of people level, whether it's, um, I'm trying to remember a name, but it'll probably escape me and I'll end up referencing someone a lot more decent, but that uh, lawyer woman in the um, mid uh, 20th century, uh, very uh, pronounced atheist, uh, majority of her case was removing prayer from schools and so forth. Just a real mm. unpleasant woman. You know who I'm referring to? Yeah, I think so. Sorry, I'm, I, I'll come up with the I'm name I'm thinking either. of Madeline Murray O'Hare, but I may be wrong. Okay. The, the point being made is this. Uh, the argument for religious liberties and the absolute farce that is the ACLU and all the other causes that seek to remove religious influence from the United States in particular is in fundamental conflict with the founders' intentions. They said that a, a religious people or a non-Christian people are wholly incapable of governing themselves mm -hmm. under this law. So, and it's a summary, note the quote in its proper context, but the point being made is this. If people want to study something on their own time, especially given the state of education in the world today, I'd say it's actually better for mm -hmm. things to be left out of state legislation and curriculum than for it to be enforced, because guess who then is teaching the Bible? Probably not people who want to represent it properly. But if, on the other hand, you're talking to people who have this desire saying that the Bible should be the only textbook in schools, 
I'm a pastor, and I disagree with that. Mm. There are th- the, there's a purpose for the Bible, and I think it accomplishes that far more if it's come to willingly rather than handed down as a requirement. That's an opinion. Take of it for what you will. But as far as whether or not this country or any country should be teaching the Bible, here's, I think, the best conclusion we could come to without getting bummed out about it. There will be a day where Jesus will be teaching everybody that the education will be coming from our Lord himself. That'll be in the millennium, not yet. We have the opportunity to personally follow him today until it's fulfilled and something that we can enjoy in its ultimate zenith. But the people who don't share that hope, I think, should be given the opportunity to say no and the consequences thereof. And I think if we take the time to educate ourselves, not only on our own beliefs, but even the beliefs of others, that's going to accomplish far more, not just in personal evangelism, but individual competence than if everything that we were supposed to know ever is dictated to us by the state, because the state is run by people, and people can mess things up. I'm of the belief and philosophy that if we mitigate damage as much as possible, it's with individual freedom, not with state legislated enforced good things. Because just like we talked about with Lucifer, great power in the wrong hands is also an equally evil capacity for great good or great evil. And much like we've seen throughout history, when the state determines what Bible you're allowed to read and what parts of it you're not allowed to read or talk about, uh, we called that the Dark Ages. Mm. And again, that wasn't just because of the uh, handling of Scripture. There were a lot of cults at that time, too. It was because of Muslims cutting off the Silk Road. But the point we made is this. If you want to learn the Bible, then I'd recommend finding good Bible teachers. A lot of teachers in public school aren't good. I've had many. I can name maybe two that I liked that Mm. actually taught me things. Mm. And I actually learned more when I was homeschooled than anyone else's. I'm not everybody. Your experience may be different, but the point we made is this. If we want to learn something, we accomplish far more in taking the time to learn it rather than just saying, well, why don't why doesn't the government just learn us properly? Right. Um, they've never done that properly. And yeah. let's just make sure that we're taking the time to say, you know what? If I want to know something, I'm going to find people I trust, find resources I can understand, and do so on my own time, because that's the difference between a smart person and an educated person. Yeah. My kids go to a Christian school which I'm very grateful for, but I'm most grateful for the, the teachers and also the, the parents of my kids' friends who are in their life and helping them, you know, kind of takes a village, that thing, helping them navigate the things of life. You know, like you say, it's, it's beyond, you know, we should raise, raise a child in the way that uh, they should go. Um, that is, that's an instruction, but that is, goes way beyond, like you say, a textbook. You know, it's people around them, people helping them navigate. Oh, we got to sign off. Thank you for joining us. (laughs) You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.